talk, talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Captain Ed Mamet and Detective Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cop Talk here on WABC Radio Podcast. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective, and I'm here with my co-host, Captain Retired Ed Mamet. Welcome, WABC listeners, to another episode of Cop Talk. So today, our guest is... Congressman Anthony D'Esposito. He's a four, he's the fourth congressional district is his district, and he covers, I believe, the town of Hempstead as well as the city of Long Beach. He serves on some House committees. One is the Homeland Security House Committee, Transportation and Infrastructure House Administration, as well. Welcome, Congressman. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Pleasure to be part of Cop Talk. Thank you, thank you. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit of your background? I know you were a former NYPD and, of course, now in politics. So if you could just tell us a little bit of your background, that would be great. Yeah, so born and raised in the 4th Congressional District in Island Park. I still live the same place I was raised. I went to school here in Island Park. Uh, I went to Chaminade High School, graduated there. I went to Hofstra, and uh, after graduating Hofstra, joined the NYPD. Did my entire career in the 7-3, retired out of the 7-3 squad. Um, had a pretty active uh, career. I, I always say it's uh, a job that I miss each and every day. Uh, in 2016, I was given the opportunity to uh, join the Hempstead Town Board, which uh, the town of Hempstead is actually the largest town in the nation, uh, bigger than I think seven states by population. So I represented uh, the town of Hempstead from 2016 to 2023. Uh, and then in 2022, I ran in the fourth uh, congressional district. It was a seat that was held by Democrats for the last 25 years, uh, a seat that Joe Biden won in 2020 by 16 and a half points. And uh, we were able to not only win it, but win it by four points, which is a good, a good uh, margin. And uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting ride. And I have to say, uh, my career in the NYPD, I, I always say that uh, I know my parents wouldn't want to hear this, but it, it was probably the best education that I could get for entering government and politics. Wow. So, Congressman, what made you get involved in law enforcement? What made you want to become a police officer? So, you know, born and raised, uh, like I said, in Island Park. I spent my my uh, late teenage years, early 20s, uh, bartending in, in places like Long Beach and Island Park. I know we have some mutual friends that uh, have done the same and been been part of the, some of those places. And yes. uh, it's just, you know, listen, it's, it's all about public service. I think uh, the NYPD is one of those storied institutions and, and getting into law enforcement and being part of that family is, is like something that uh, I really think is no other. So, um, you know, joining joining law enforcement, I met some of the greatest people I've ever met. Had, you know, as I think we would all agree, probably have some of the greatest stories. Some we could tell, some we can't. Um, but uh, it was the ride of a lifetime, and truly, as they say, it was a, a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. What are your fond memories? What, what are some of your favorite memories from being on the NYPD, working in seven three precinct? You know. I, Right now, I, I think, uh, and, and this happens pretty regularly, you know, especially at night when we're, we're finishing up a late session in Congress, and I walk out of the out of the Capitol building and walk down those, you know, monstrous steps, and I, I look back at the Capitol building, and I have such different feelings. One is, you know, it's such an honor to be there. Um, how did I get here? And, and then to think back, you know, like in 2005, 2006, I was standing a footpost on Rockaway Avenue and Lalonia Avenue. And now my neighbors have given me the honor of re- representing them in, in the halls of Congress. It's just, it's amazing. But, but thinking back, you know, the, some of the investigations that I, I was a part of, you know, we uh, were part of probably the first uh, large-scale investigation in the NYPD that, that utilized social media taking down 
uh, two warring gangs in Brownsville and in the PSA two, the projects that encompass PSA two. Um, we were able to arrest 43 members of the gang for conspiracy to commit murder. And that was really at a time when social media was just getting started. And a lot of the, uh, the older guys in the, in the squad, you know, thought it was BS. It was something that we would never utilize. And, you know, it was one of the first cases where we now started taking, uh, Facebook profile pictures and creating photo arrays with them because this, that was the only way we could identify these individuals. So, you know, some of my fondest memories are, 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 Things like that, um, you know, traveling with with those that we've able to to become family with in the in the department, um, you know, traveling to police week, going on on different trips with the men and women that we served with, and just being part of that of that family of that having that camaraderie. Um, and obviously, there are good memories and there are bad memories. You know, when we lose the, the those that we love, our, our fallen heroes, those are always things that stick with us forever. I think you. Uh, you know, you, you remember where you were, what you were doing exactly at the moment that you found out that that happened. And just, you know, the the the, the, the kidding around and the the uh, busting each other's chops, the, the things that can only happen amongst law enforcement. That's the stuff that you miss. Exactly. And the 7-3 was busy. Actually, it's, I'm sure it's still a very busy precinct, the 7-3 in Brooklyn. Yeah, it is. It was it was busy then. It's busy now. It's uh, I think it's one of those few places in Brooklyn and probably throughout the city that uh, – You'll never see that turnaround. You'll never see that gentrification. It's just, uh, it's very tall. You know, the the 7-3 was only a a square mile, but uh, it was, I think, the most concentrated of housing in the whole city. So we had our fair share of of interesting uh, interesting days and nights. Yes, yes. That brings me to my next question. Uh, What what drew you to uh, get involved in politics? So, you know, coming into the the times around... uh, I guess 2013, 2014, when you you think about the change that we saw in our city with our, our leadership, or I should say lack of leadership, where it seems like it has progressed to becoming the popular thing to to fight against law enforcement, to disrespect the uniform, uh, to give the criminals uh, more rights than than those who are who are defending and, and holding that line. Uh, when we had so many people that were elected across this country, literally taking the handcuffs out of our gun belts uh, and putting them on cops, restricting them from doing their job. I just thought to myself, there needs to be more of us, more law enforcement, more people that have the street smarts that have have lived different lives. Not, you know, not saying that they do a bad job, but there's you know, for too long been people who have just been career politicians and and kind of groomed to do that job. I think you need people with real life experience. You need people who have, you know, walked the streets of, of real bad neighborhoods and, and affected change and understand how to talk to people and sat in a, in a car with, uh, you know, I, I think we would all agree that we've had partners on this job that, you know, we came from different economic backgrounds, different color skin, different religions, certainly different political ideologies, but our lives depended on them, their lives depended on us. And we got out of that car and we did our job. We took guns off the street. We put bad people behind bars. And I think we needed more of them in government. And, you know, I had the opportunity again to, to join the, the, the Hempstead Town Board, which is great. It was working on a local level, got to really understand how government works. I mean, it was local government, but pretty big operation. Our budget was about a half a billion dollars a year. We maintained 1,200 miles of roadway, uh, you know, close to 3,000 full-time employees. So it was a big operation. And then when given the opportunity to, to run for Congress, you know, I, I think now more than ever, we need 
individuals like the, like the three of us who have worn the uniform representing us in different forms of government. And, you know, I, I truly believe that the, the work that I've done, the things that I've seen in the NYPD uh, really is helpful to the committees that I serve, especially, you know, I serve on the House Homeland Security Committee, which was a committee that, you know, Peter King from Long Island served on from the, from the days that that committee was started. Uh, and I truly believe that it's always uh, a spot where a New Yorker needs to sit. And luckily, we have three New Yorkers sitting on the, uh, at least on the Republican side, on the House Homeland Security Committee. You have myself, Andrew Garbarino, and Nick Lalota, who uh, all represent Long Island, all uh, respect law enforcement, and all uh, serve on that committee. And, you know, I, w- I was one of the few freshmen uh, given a chairmanship, and I, am, I serve as the chairman uh, of the subcommittee in, in Homeland Security on Emergency Management and Technology, which handles all the grant funding, all FEMA. Um, a lot of the, the, the initiatives that we see in the NYPD and other law enforcement agencies stem through that subcommittee. So uh, I, I really believe that, you know, why did I get involved in this? Why did I? Uh, because I think we need more of us um, to, to really hold that line and to be the louder voice. When people think about New York, they think about, you know, people like AOC with the, with the loud voices, anti-cop rhetoric. Well, now we have some more loud voices speaking on our behalf, and I think we need more of them. You know, you mentioned the 73rd Precinct. I grew up in that neighborhood, as did my father. And in my early days as a sergeant, I was the second whip of, that, of the squad. Okay. To those uh, who are listening, the second whip would be the sergeant supervisor of the squad. I was not the commanding officer. And I was there in the days of the Black Liberation Army. There was a lot of hot activity there. In fact, one of my fondest memories was a mailman comes into the detective squad with a bag, and in the bag are sticks of dynamite. And he said that he was delivering mail, and um, he was standing on something. It felt like rolling logs. And he walks in with dynamite. And then uh, a a few days later, we find dynamite against the wall below our office window. So it was a pretty wild place. I can relate very well to it. Also, you know, you follow in the footsteps of two other New York police people that I can think of the first in Congress. The first one was a um, inspector named Freddie Heineman. I guess it was about 40 years ago. And then you had Mario Biaggi. So right. I, I don't know if you're, you're the third or the fourth, but um, I think Heineman... Yeah, I believe I'm number three, but the first NYPD detective. Well, the first congressman that I recall in my career that came from the police department was Fred Heineman. So, you know, it's very nice that uh, we have people from the police department because they bring a wealth of knowledge. Like you say, it's the greatest show on earth. Now, I want to ask you this. Recently, you introduced a federal bill, a bill of rights for law enforcement that strengthened the legal protection of officers and uh, condemns calls to uh, to defund and abolish the police. What inspired you to introduce the bill? What What's the current status of uh, of the bill? So the bill the bill passes a rule, um, and um, what inspired me was you know everything that I think we hear about and read about and see uh, each and every day. You know, you, you take the, the the department that I think the three of us love very much, and you talk to people that were generational in the NYPD. They they are legacies that continue for uh, and go back a long ways. And, and when, when individuals like that, whose father was on the job, grandfather, great grandfather was on the job and they're at the breaking point where they're not telling their children and grandchildren to join our ranks. I think that's a real problem. Um, because our job and the legacies that we're created in them are, are the, I really truly believe the, that it's part of the very fabric of, of everything that we hold dear. And we see in, in, in especially blue states and blue cities throughout this country where, 
the the police departments and and law enforcement are just held um the people and elected officials encourage uh neighbors and and, and residents to to disrespect them to to disregard them to ignore their presence uh the fact that we have you know leadership or i i should say lack of leadership calling on the defunding and the and the abolishing of of law enforcement is absolutely insane uh, if anything, what we need now, and it's things that we're fighting for every day, is we need more funding for the police. You want to you want to focus on community policing? Well, they need resources to do that. You want to take illegal firearms off the street? You need resources to do that. You want to battle uh, the the fentanyl uh, epidemic that we're facing? Well, you need resources to do that. And it's not about uh, taking funding away. It's about giving them more funding. So the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights was something that was supported, and, and thankfully there, there was a, uh, a bipartisan group that supported my efforts on the House floor when it passed. Um, and it, it's, it really uh, gives law enforcement uh, the tools that they need uh, in order to effectively do their job. And what it also does, and what, what our hope was, is to encourage states to start doing the same. I mean, places like New York, where they've, they've totally told, turned their back on law enforcement, and we saw our state legislature our Senate, our assembly and our governor fully support uh, the cashless bail and, and criminal justice reform and, and basically paint issues with a broad brush. Never once uh, talking to law enforcement and, and asking their um, what they thought about it. And we, we've seen the devastating results of it. Our, our streets are, are less safe. Uh, the quality of life in New York City has plummeted. Um, there are empty storefronts in, in areas w- which used to you couldn't even get real estate. Um, the cops are are not happy. The the um, they don't have the ability to do the job that they want to do effectively. Um, so we need on a federal level and and hoping that it it, it trickles down to our state level. Um, we need to be supporting law enforcement, and that's exactly what the Bill of Rights did. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. A very, a very, very hot issue is the uh, qualified immunity. Now, as you know, that's a Supreme Court decision, and uh, it's being attacked left and right by the far left. Uh, as you know, in, in New York State, the, the state challenged that and uh, is trying to um, downplay it. And the city of New York piggybacked on that, and they're not defending uh, cops uh, using that qualified immunity defense. In your Bill of Rights, is it possible that you could build in and codify qualified immunity so it goes beyond the Supreme Court decision? In other words, it becomes permanent, the law of the land. Yeah, I'm, we're working on that, and there's actually some other legislation being worked on to do just that. And, and like you said, there are, are cities and states that, um, you know, it, it's almost like a race to see who could be more progressive and who could be more uh, anti-qualified immunity, and and, it, and it's working um, because we see in places that it's being challenged, it's uh, it's being fought in court. But I, I will say that we have a decent amount of uh, retired law enforcement as uh, as members of the House of Representatives, and I think that there are some pretty even-keeled uh, senators on the other side of the House that uh, 
would feel the same way. And I know that we are working on this on, on a few different different angles. Now, Congress as an institution has about a 20% approval rate. What can Congress do to improve that standing with Americans? I think it's all about being out there, being up front and, and being honest. I think that, you know, the three of us would probably agree that one of the uh, one of the things that um, that cops are about is about really telling it how it is and, and being up front and and being very clear on, on where they stand and what they're doing. And being transparent is important. Being out in the community, I think one of the one of the things that we've seen uh, for the last, you know, I, I guess since Congress has been around is that many members of Congress get elected, especially those in safe seats. And, uh, you know, they spend uh, more time in D.C. And, and traveling than they do back in their in their home state and in their home district. And that's one of the things that I've said. You know, I, I always share the story as a, as a rookie cop in the 7-3. I remember it was, uh, it was a super hot night, and I was patrolling. I had my windows up, and uh, a veteran had knocked on the window and said, uh, what's with the windows up? And I said, oh, you know, it's hot out. I have the air conditioning on, and gave me the advice and said, you know, you never – uh, when you're patrolling these streets, you always have your windows down so you could hear the streets, smell the streets, and that's how you could do your best job. And I took that advice and brought it to government and politics and make sure that my windows are always down, uh, my feet are always on the ground. And, you know, when we get done voting on, uh, uh, you know, during a, a work a, a week in D.C., uh, I really try to get the first plane back, back to New York, back to Long Island, because I know that I need to be out here talking to my constituents, um, you know, attending events and making sure that they understand that their representation is not just uh, some figure in Washington, but actually has his boots on the ground here. So I think to improve that, that, uh, that, uh, to improve that approval rating, we need to be regular people. We need to have our boots on the ground. We need to understand that uh, and make people understand that we are listening to them, that we're their voice. Uh, and listen, it, it, it doesn't help when you have uh, complete frauds like George Santos uh, representing uh, a district to the north of me. Um, that doesn't help. But, um, you know, I'm going to do my best just as I did uh, in my last election as town councilman in a, in a district that Democrats outnumber Republicans. I won with 70 percent of the vote and I won because Democrats, Republicans, independents supported me. And I, and I want to do the same thing as a member of Congress. And I think being available, being accessible, uh, making sure that people understand that, that you hear them and, and uh, that their voice is being heard in the halls of Congress is super important. Uh, and, and being honest and, and laying your head on your pillow every night, knowing that you uh, worked as hard as you can all day for the people that, that sent you there, I think sends a strong message. Congressman, you were the first sitting Republican congressman to call for George Santos' resignation, correct? Yes, I was. A congressman, what's your favorite uh, thing about being a congressman? Yeah, listen, I think it's getting to meet so many different people from so many walks of life. You know, um, I think we would agree that New York and Long Island is is a is a unique place, and when you get to share, uh, you know, share committees and and you know go to different events and just spend time with people from all walks of life from every corner of this country, both Democrat and Republican. I mean, a few uh, about a month ago, I had the opportunity to travel. Um, on a uh, with Speaker McCarthy, uh, we went to uh, Ireland, Israel, and Jordan, and I traveled with uh, Republicans and Democrats. Got to meet um, some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle that I really didn't get a chance to spend time with yet. And you know, um, as much as it as the mainstream media makes it look like it's always a battle, there are a lot of things that we can agree on, and I think it's uh, it's opportunities like that to meet with people that you know represent very different districts, but may have. Uh, very similar 
concerns or, or beliefs or things that they want to deliver for places just like Long Island. If you can't say, what's your least favorite thing about Congress? Uh, I think the least favorite is, uh, I guess, twofold. You know, being away from from home is, is difficult. You know, being on the road four to four to five days a week is not easy. And, you know, listen, uh, Washington, D.C. is a tough city. It's uh, uh, There are a lot of sharks, and, and I truly believe that one of the greatest uh, preparations for for being in D.C. especially. I mean, local politics is one thing, but when you get on that national scale and, and you see uh, those sharks from all over this country, I, I really truly believe that being a, a part uh, of the NYPD and working in such a busy place uh, with some of the greatest cops and investigators I think this job has seen uh, is the best preparation that you could have. You're the chairman of the subcommittee uh, on emergency management and technology, and that places you at the forefront of artificial intelligence and other things like that. How do you see your role as far as affecting law enforcement in that position? So I think we, you know, we've taken like a, a, a real uh, life experience approach on the subcommittee. One of the things that we're focused on is making sure that. Um, that it's not just big departments. Like I think we we, uh, we have seen that being part of the NYPD, we we usually get the, the the newest technology. It may not always work, but we get the the newest technology. Uh, there's a lot of grant funding that comes comes to the big cities and big departments, uh, and we've really made it a focus. And this is sort of a bipartisan effort uh, to make sure that you know all of law enforcement throughout the country are getting what they need, not just the big ones. We want to make sure that the local villages that the local sheriffs, that the, um, the smaller departments are getting their uh, fair play at, at the tons of money that's out there. Uh, one of the other things that we're focused on is the future of FEMA. You know, you, you look at when FEMA began, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and the mission has remained the same. The mission of FEMA has remained the same. And, and I think we would uh, look back at FEMA and you think about their response to natural disasters, earthquakes, tornadoes, uh, flooding, when we saw Hurricane Sandy. But now their mission remains the same, but it's much more expanded. We saw that as FEMA was on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. We see now as FEMA uh, is standing on that front line of, you know, caring for individuals coming across our southern border. So we're taking a very hardline approach at the future of FEMA to make sure that uh, they have the resources that they need to to deal with this ever expanding mission, um, but while in the process, making sure that they're not uh, neglecting what their original mission was, and and a lot of that has to do with uh, being a being an arm and being a resource for law enforcement. Do you see a role for law enforcement in making sure that this technology serves society and doesn't harm it? Because, you know, there's a lot of opposition to some of these things like facial recognition and other areas where the Civil Liberties Union gets involved and they oppose it. So um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think there's a place for law enforcement because they're the ones that are dealing with this on an everyday basis. And like I said, much of the... the um the technology that that we receive, it, it doesn't always work, um, but we are we are the ones that are really on the front lines to be able to uh, articulate why something works, why it doesn't work, and how we could improve it or move on to a different technology. And I, I think that um, really collaborating with law enforcement on much of this is what's important. And I, I think very often, um, because they don't have a voice and because they're not represented. Um, 
law enforcement sometimes doesn't have a seat at the table. And I, I think that's one of the reasons as to why it's so important to be electing members of law enforcement to all various positions in government, because we truly need that seat at the table. We need our voice to be heard. And who better to be that voice, who better to tell that story than someone who's worn the uniform? Congressman, you mentioned uh, Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I believe at that time you were the chief of uh, Island Park Fire Department? Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? How was that experience, being the chief of the fire department on the Hurricane Sandy? Yeah, I mean, I've been a, uh, as many of, uh, I'm sure, listening know, uh, the um, on Long Island, much of our fire service and EMS protection is, is handled by volunteers. So uh, I served in, uh, I've been serving as, as a member of the Island Park Fire Department since I was 18. So just uh, approaching, I guess, 23 years. Um, and I've been honored to serve in every capacity in the, in the Island Park Fire Department. But uh, from 2009 to 2016, I, I served as chief and I was the uh, incident commander during uh, both Irene and Sandy. Um, and Hurricane Sandy was by far and away one of the most devastating um, things that we've seen here on the South Shore, whether it was Long Beach or Island Park, uh, parts of Oceanside, East Rockaway. I mean, we we never expected the the tidal surge that we saw. I mean, you know, there were were people with that that lost everything. And I remember the 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 night before. Uh, as the storm was hitting, we had a, a, a report of a, of a house fire. We took a, uh, a, a, a large army truck over there, and um, by the time we got to the house, the, the hydrants were covered, um, you know, the, the trucks had stalled, and we actually wound up driving the army truck through the house just to put the fire out so that uh, it wouldn't spread down the block and we'd see issues like they saw in Breezy and other places. Um, and I remember walking back arm in arm with, with men and women of the Island Park Fire Department to our firehouse and, and really at that point understanding that this village and this community were going to be changed forever. And the next morning when the when the, the storm had come through, I remember standing in front of the firehouse, still water in the streets, and seeing my neighbors who I've known for my whole life literally walking down our main street of Long Beach Road in, in Island Park with, with baskets and, um, you know, that was the only thing left of, of what they had in their home. And uh, we've seen, you know, some of the very best of people and some of the worst of people come out of that storm. But um, I believe that we've, you know, we've rebuilt. We're, we're starting to see a renaissance. But uh, being the incident commander for that uh, was one of the most interesting experiences of my life. You know, I, I had uh, fire departments here from all over the country uh, working with different agencies and uh, we've seen, you know, it, it's been it's been interesting. Obviously, the landscape and of of communities that were devastated by the storm have changed forever. Um, but uh, it was also a learning experience, and I think it was one that, you know, for those of us in emergency management, whether the fire service, police department, you always ask yourself, are we better off today uh, than we were the last time we saw an incident of this magnitude? And um, I think that there are places where we are better off today than we were. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, but I think that there are places where we still need improvement. And that's one of the reasons why it's so great to be the, the chairman of that subcommittee on emergency management and technology, because it gives me, again, that real life experience to affect change and hopefully help communities in other parts of this nation um, that are going to see uh, natural disasters like we did. Right. I agree. Now, Congressman, really, did you want to be a fireman or a cop? <laughs> uh, I always wanted to be a cop. Um, you know, 
but being, being a part of the volunteer fire service is great. You know, we have uh, over 70 departments here in Nassau County, and, it, and honestly, they've been uh, some of my biggest supporters going into these elections. You know, you take my congressional election where in my district, Democrats outnumber Republicans by about 80,000. Uh, and we, we won it by four points. There is no doubt, and I, I thank them as much as I can, that you know the, my family and the fire service are uh, definitely part of the reason why we, you know, we were able to be victorious. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Speaking about uh, Long Beach now, the windmills, there's an issue out there with the windmill situation. Um, Absolutely. The windmills. What's your thoughts on the, uh, that situation? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think what we're facing with the, with the windmills um, is really two fronts. But right now, what we're focused on is the fact that uh, the company that uh, has won this bid, Equinor, um, has just been a really bad neighbor. Uh, and that's what we're, we're focused on right now. And I, I think you'd agree that uh, it's very often that, you know, members of both, both parties agree. Um, but it, it, there's a pretty uh, unified front uh, against the way Equinor has treated the barrier island in our communities, just lack of transparency, lack of information, really thinking that they could just utilize their political clout and just bulldoze over our communities. And I, I think, you know, when you, you know, to make some local references, when, when it's the chatter at, uh, you know, at either the saloon or Nolan's or, or some other places throughout the community, you know that people are talking about it. And I think that, um, what we're going to do is we're going to be unified in, in saying that uh, we want information from Equinor. Uh, we want to know what their plans are. And if uh, they're not going to share that information with any of us, well, then we're going to stand very tall and make sure that they know that they're not welcome here. I mean, most recently we saw that uh, there was legislation to, to, for a very long story short, for a home rule message for the city of Long Beach. Um, the city council flip-flopped saying first they wanted it, then they didn't want it, then they wanted it again. Um, and, you know, we had our representation, Senator Kanzanary Fitzpatrick and Assemblyman Ari Brown, you know, they, they held the line, they shelved the legislation to, uh, to protect the barrier island. And the governor had a senator from Brooklyn, from Flatbush, uh, carry the bill. And it passed. It passed the Senate and the Assembly. So it's, it's very clear what we're fighting here. We're fighting an agenda. We're fighting uh, a, a political agenda. Um, but nonetheless, like I've said to uh, many community members, Long Beach, Island Park, the Barrier Island, you know, luckily we're, uh, we're good fighters and we're going to keep fighting. Right, I agree. Speaking about city council, uh, Brendan Finn, who you know, he's running for city council, correct? Yeah, Brendan Finn is a, a great guy, uh, I believe retired first grader. I've actually known Brendan my, uh, my entire life. He was, uh, he was married to a D'Esposito many years ago. Oh. Uh, but Brendan's a great guy. Uh, I know that uh, him and his running mates... Um, are uh, are fighting the good fight and and that's a perfect example take brendan finn who spent his life uh in the in the nypd um comes from an nypd family his his sister uh, also nypd and then you got uh another guy who's running from the city of long beach who i, I want to give a shout out to because he's just running a phenomenal campaign um but also wears the uniform not the not the police department but he's a lieutenant in the fdny works in squad 288 um, and he's running for county legislature uh, to replace Denise Ford, who, as we know, who, her husband died in a, uh, the Father's Day fire back in 2001. And she's been a staunch advocate for first responders, police, fire. Uh, and now we have, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, you know, having guys and, and girls who wore the uniform start to run for office is super important. And I, I'm so excited 
uh, to see Brendan put his hat in the ring. Uh, Pat Mullaney, who's, who's again, going to run for uh, or is running for the county legislature. I mean, good quality people who care about the community, who want to do what's right. Uh, and they're not doing it. You know, I've always been taught public service is about serving the public, not having the public serve you. And uh, if you have people who have done their careers in the police department, the fire department, they understand public service. Right. I agree. They have our support as well. I know you're a golfer. So on August 21st, on Monday, August 21st, in Inwood Golf Course, which you know in Long Island, yeah. uh, we're having a uh, Stevie Van Zandt. It's uh, Stevie Van Zandt's Policeman's Ball uh, Golf Outing, our first annual and actually, I'm involved in the committee as well. And what we do is we raise money for the widows and children of the NYPD, as well as Arms Wide Open, uh, which is Great. a which is a uh, foundation for uh, police officers throughout the country with children with uh, who are disabled. So we've been doing yeah. that for years, but this is the first time we're going to actually have a golf outing. So uh, it's August 21st, Monday in Inwood. Golf course, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. And I hope you can uh, attend. That'd be great Ca- to see. Count right me there. in for a foursome and a sponsorship. Fantastic. Thank you, Congressman. And I'd also like to thank you again for, you know, spending time with us. I know you're very busy, a lot of work to be done in Washington, and thank you for having someone like you down there. Always got time for the cops. I'd love to talk more. Thank Thank you, you, Congressman. Onward and upward. Okay. Stay safe, Jeff. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Anthony D'Esposito. Okay. Good luck. Be safe. And God bless. Thank you. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to another episode of Cop Talk. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Until next time, be safe out there. Thank you.